fake, fake, fakety fake. Hi, I'm Jody. And I'm Tim. And welcome to a special episode of Imperial News, where we will be covering Ezra Levant's career in word printing, starting with his 2009 book, Shakedown. This is our third episode, covering the second half of Chapter 2. As you may have noticed, Caitlin is still not with us, so we are joined again by Tim, who is also a part of Chapter 2. I thought I, thought I was going to miss the Nazis, and thankfully I'm not going to. No. <laughs> You are not going to miss the Nazis. This chapter half is like nonstop front to back, all Nazi coverage. And it's pretty terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> all Nazis, all the time. It's the content that people want. So how? before we get into it, how are you, Tim? How's uh, the weather in Australia this time? Uh, it is bad. We are going through a life-threatening heat wave at the moment, in addition to all the smoke from the bushfires. So... Nice. Uh, I'm, I'm really trying to not take my, my son outside at the moment, uh, baby mask notwithstanding. Yeah, we kind of like uh, defied the flat earth today because it's like, feels like negative 20 here. We got uh, at least 10 centimeters of snow outside. Truly ours is the song of ice and fire. All right. So before we start, I wanted to say something just to add some modern context to uh, the last part that you were on which is that one of the arguments that has come up several times before is that Ezra thinks the court system is better because defendants can obtain legal aid and defend themselves in court without going bankrupt. And he says that this is unlike the HRCs that don't provide this legal support. And of course, it is from a ceaseless parade of pro bono lawyers. Right, right, exactly. I mean, this is on top. So he goes, you can exhaust the legal aid and then you get the pro bono stuff. But here's the thing is, uh, it's important to note that Doug Ford, who Ezra supports, who's the premier of Ontario, just cut $133 million of legal aid, basically rendering the program ineffective in Ontario. And <laughs> the Ford government ended up calling this act the Smarter and Stronger Justice Act. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to have to assume that Doug Ford was just responding to extensive lobbying from all those pro bono lawyers who are like, come on, you're not giving me a chance here. Actually, it would come from the non-pro bono lawyers because I guess it's now those pro bonos can't even get a little funding from the aid that's set up there. Uh, oh, fair enough. But either way, uh, Ezra has not said a single word about this. So if he really cared about this issue, he would have uh, spoken up by now. But we're going to move on to beginning the second half of chapter two. That's a Nazi move. And Ezra starts by making two claims. And we're just going to jump into Tim saying the first quote. <laughs> That's a very provocative beginning here. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to just jump right into Tim. All right. So the first quote. At the Canadian Human Rights Commission, the abuse of process goes deeper. Trial transcripts reveal that the staff of the uh, CHRC's anti-hate squad in their bid to entrap alleged hate mongers actually have become one of Canada's largest sources of hate speech. The two points that Ezra thinks that the HRCs are engaged in, in entrapment, and that they are doing this because there aren't racists anymore. Hence the claim that the HRCs are really the largest sources of hate speech. Ezra begins by leading the audience by describing the activities of the HRCs as goading Canadian citizens into making hateful comments by pretending themselves to be hateful people. And Ezra compares this to, for example, a police officer laying out a few lines of coke, snorting first, and then inviting others to join in, and then arresting them when they join in. 
So that's what Ezra thinks is happening at the Human Rights Commissions. In particular, because in having to use hateful speech to goad others to make hateful speech, Ezra claims the HRCs are themselves violating Section 13 of the Human Rights Act. I would love to hear the breakdown of how that's supposed to work in practice. Well, the idea is, so you're going to find out, uh, there's uh, one lawyer by the name of Richard Warman who went undercover into a lot of like online hate sites and used kind of like iffy language, and we're going to get into it. But Ezra's argument is basically that the HRCs are themselves violating Section 13 by doing this undercover work. Uh Uh-huh. That's essentially his case. But I mean, there's the bigger point, which is that he says in the quote that you laid out that the HRCs themselves are the biggest source of the hate. Right, right. So they're going on to these neo-Nazi groups. They start spouting a bunch of racism and anti-Semitism. And all the Nazis are like, well, I just wanted to fit in with this cool guy. I wasn't even going to say anything racist. Basically, yes. That's kind of what he's arguing. So, I mean, like on that point. So even worse, according to Ezra, Uh, these HRC activists are actually whipping up racism and encouraging racists to organize. In other words, these racists wouldn't be a threat, would likely not even exist if these human rights activists weren't in there organizing them and stirring them up. As further evidence that racists just don't exist, Ezra describes a scenario where two members in a Stormfront chat, and if you don't know, Stormfront is a was one of the biggest online neo-Nazi websites in the early 2000s, So in the Stormfront chat, there was both an Edmonton police officer and named Stephen Camp and a human rights activist that I've already told is Richard Warman. And at one point in the conversation, they were talking to each other in this chat, even though both of them were undercover. Right, right. And (laughs) so Ezra uses this example to basically be like, you see, everyone on these chat groups, they're all undercover. (laughs) <laughs> the, the whole thing is that, that gif, which is the two Spider-Mans pointing at each other. Yeah, exactly. There's something weird in retelling the story, since, for one, there exists a neo-Nazi webpage like Stormfront in the first place. And two, people other than the police officer and the activists were present in the chat. But somehow Ezra thinks that this one incident where two undercover people are present is evidence that racism is just not a problem anymore. And, you know, it is kind of a coincidence, but, like... The mere presence of a coincidence is not some sort of like evidence to some general pattern. Yeah, this is not the smoking gun that there just would have been no racism otherwise. (laughs) Or not, well, like, I mean, I guess his argument is that there's so little racism online that they just all, like, the two undercover people happen to meet at the same point. When there's likely, you could come up with a better scenario where there's like likely a third cause, which is that Stormfront is the biggest neo-Nazi site on on the web, so of course they're all going to be there, you know? Yeah, if if it's Mecca for online Nazis, it, it makes sense that that would be your first point of call for anyone coming in from the outside. In fact, for Ezra, it's much worse than the picture that we're already painting. And this is quote two. Oh boy, here we go. So... There's no telling how many other people in that neo-Nazi website were also in on the game. Given the number of bureaucrats in this country who we pay to monitor hate speech, it's possible that no one on that Stormfront chat was a real neo-Nazi. When the anti-hate activists are a leading source of hate, it's time to get a new moral compass. Notice how Ezra makes a statement about possibility, which, you know, anything is possible. Though in this case, it doesn't seem very probable at all that no one in that Stormfront chat was a real neo-Nazi. Like, it was just all a bunch of 
undercover people all chat with each other. It's like those old, um, uh, the, those cyber sex uh, chats where like there's a whole bunch of hot teens, but at every single one of them is like a 45 year old guy in their basement somewhere. <laughs> like that's, that's what Ezra's imagining. It's, it's the, the equivalent of that, but it's everyone pretending to be a racist to catch other racists who aren't there. But that one sounds a little bit more legitimate. <laughs> like, like your example is what I can believe actually happened. Yeah, I suppose. I, I mean, Ezra's one is exactly as improbable as that one Terry Pratchett book where there's a country whose military doesn't allow women to join. Uh, so we're following a woman who has disguised herself as a man. And over the course of the book, we learned that absolutely everybody in her unit is a woman dressed up as a man to join the military. And there's no men. But again, to go from this claim about possibility to then state that anti-hate activists are a leading source of hate with absolutely no evidence is basically Ezra downplaying the entire existence of Nazis online. And this, this is the rhetorical game Ezra plays throughout the rest of this chapter. Ezra wants to argue against the HRCs, but this puts him in a weird position of being allied with Nazis. So how does one uh, deal with this? By saying that Nazis don't exist, or at the very least are super duper rare, and anyone the HRC is concluding is a Nazi actually isn't really a Nazi. In this way, Ezra can defend these people by pointing to how unjust the HRC cases were against them, while avoiding being accused as a Nazi sympathizer himself, or even as a Nazi. Yeah, I mean, your, your rhetoric can't give shelter to real Nazis if they're not there. I'm not defending a Nazi because these people aren't even Nazis. See, you know what this is? This is the appropriate use of the concept of a witch hunt, because, you know, the, what's bad about a witch hunt is that you can't really find a witch. They don't really exist. But that's, witches are what Nazis are to Ezra. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that is exactly what they are to Ezra. So we, <laughs> we will go into more detail about Richard Warman in a later chapter, especially regarding his relationship with the Human Rights Commission's and to what extent this counts as a conflict of interest for someone. So basically, Warman worked for the Human Rights Commission from 2002 till 2004, but he also was someone who filed complaints even after he worked at the, the commission. So I guess the conflict is he worked for the commission, and now he's pursuing complaints. Therefore, there's like some sort of conflict. But again, we'll touch on that when Ezra gets to it. I think it's in chapter four. Mm. Ezra wants to focus on the implication that Warman, who was an independent uh, citizen at the time, uh, allegedly, according to Ezra, violated section 13 while trying to entrap others to violate it. So Warman went uh, on his own volition, undercover on neo-Nazi websites, under the aliases of Pogue Mahone and Axe to Grind. <laughs> While undercover, Warman said things that would at least fit the profile of online racists so he would blend in. In order to determine whether Warman in fact violated six, Section 13, we need to understand what it says first. So I'm going to have Tim read the long, annoying legal quote here. Mm -hmm. So this is 13 in parentheses 1, so the, the first part of it. It is a discriminatory practice for a person or a group of persons acting in concert to communicate telephonically or to cause to be so communicated repeatedly in whole or in part by means of the facilities of a telecommunication undertaking within the legislative authority of parliament 
any matter that is likely to expose a person or persons to hatred or contempt by reason of the fact that the person or those persons are identifiable on the basis of a prohibited ground of discrimination. Did anything Mormon say expose to hatred anyone on the basis of religion, sexual orientation, race, color, national or ethnic origin, and disability? So those are the uh, prohibited grounds of discrimination. On the basis uh, that Ezra would want to give us the best case against Warman, we will go over the quotes or paraphrases and semi-quotes that Ezra provides in the book as the what, what I guess would be the best cases that Warman actually violated Section 13 in the language he used. Hmm. So the first example, which Ezra paraphrases and semi-quotes, but I will read it out in full here so it's easier, Warman wrote, and this is again out of context, he said, exactly when will white cops understand that they should stand by their race? And there was capitalized. Now, this was said to an online account on Stormfront named Der Totenkopf, uh, which I think is something the the Nazis had written on their uniform somewhere. And it was the uh, username of someone named Syrian Donnelly, who was a well-known neo-Nazi who was a member of the short-lived group Western Canada for Us, which was mostly known for organizing a rally in support of Holocaust denier Ernst Zundel. Mm. I cannot find the context of the offending message because this case ended in mediation. (laughs) Uh, So that means that there's no like uh, decision that I can read to see what the quote actually said. However, it is clear that although vile, it does not promote uh, promote hatred towards others on the basis of a prohibited grounds of discrimination, right? It's merely saying that white cops need to understand that they should stand by their race. Now, I mean, there's an implication there where you could worry that to not stand by your race, you must punish others who are not your race or something like that. I mean, potentially. But I think that the court would want a little bit more context before they're going to say that it falls under a Section 13 violation. Like, oh, maybe you're doing a, a an all lives matter approach here and you're saying, oh, no, I believe that cops disproportionately didn't defend whites and they need to get in on that. But again, the, the dog whistle to a Nazi is probably like, no, they should show special deference to an in-group. If you just have the phrase out of context, you can't really pause that. And I think this is an excellent uh, point to pause and reflect on that Ezra is worried that somehow there is a slippery slope inherent here. But I think the courts themselves are kind of naturally conservative with this. And what they're really concerned about is a specific kind of speech that is like very evident in some fashion that it would cause undue harm or promote hatred. And so they're not exactly what you said. Something like an all lives matter comment might actually be racist and might actually come in a context where it promotes hatred, but it probably wouldn't be grounds for a section 13 violation. Mm without, say, other context that shows that was it was made to manifest hatred against people. Yeah, because they're looking for unambiguous, citable cases. Right. So the next example that Ezra gives contains not a single quote, but says that Canadians should create an all-white city where minor- minorities weren't allowed. And I read <laughs> most of Warman's online communications through uh, his aliases, and I can't find a single quote that matches this description. <laughs> Like, it's possible that there's one I'm missing, but like, quote tweets or like, quote uh, searching in Google and stuff, I couldn't find it. So I don't know that Warman said this one. 
and it's not sourced. And it's a complete paraphrase. Did you search the proper noun Mayoville, the old white city? Mayoville. <laughs> Uh, no, I did not. And, you know, come to think of it, if I did, I probably would have found it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like, it's really difficult to search for a complete paraphrase, right? Because <laughs> that leaves me like I have no clue what Warman actually would have said if he indeed said it. Yeah, you can only search on the basis of syntax, but we have infinite combinatorial ways to express the same ideas. So Right. So his next example is another case of a paraphrase with one word quoted. And so this <laughs> this is what Ezra writes and then the quote. So Ezra says that the Canadian government's cabinet was full of Jewish, then in quotes, scum. <laughs> That's what he says that Warman said. Now this one's actually going to take a while. And so I don't want to get lost. Like keep that in your head that this is like, All right. we're focusing on this quote, but we're going to go into some detail here. And the, only, the only operant directly quoted word is scum. Yes. <laughs> so the context uh, of this quote can be found in the CHRT decision in 2009, which is Warman v. Northern Alliance and Jason Uwendik. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right, but I'm not sure. Uwendik was a spokesman for the Northern Alliance, which was a neo-Nazi organization founded and based in London, Ontario, our hometown represent. <laughs> the Northern Alliance was active from 1997 until about 2007, when they basically stopped all activity. This is likely the result of the financial situation of Uwendik, who filed for bankruptcy in 2004, the result of a libel suit that was brought against him by Richard Warman. Hmm. Yeah. During the tribunal, Warman presented evidence of Uwendik targeting almost every group that you can imagine. One of the more egregious examples is when Uwendik praises eugenics and recommends euthanizing what he calls mongoloids and using them as fuel to compete with OPEC. Uh... Yeah. So <laughs> you could tell like there's a reason why a complaint was brought up against this guy. I mean, just even just thermodynamically, I mean. <laughs> the quote about scum was in an exchange with a user named Thexter3D, who was somebody by the name Thomas Winnicky. And it was said on the website mm -hmm. Vanguard News Network, which was created by an American white supremacist and neo-Nazi Alex Linder. Linder was a member of the National Alliance, which is not to be confused with the Northern Alliance, which was one of the most well-funded neo-Nazi organizations in the United States until the death of its leader, William Peirce, in 2002, when it basically ceased functioning after that. Also interesting to note, kind of a side story, is that the National Alliance financed a record label ran out of Windsor, Ontario, called Resistance Records, which was founded uh, by George Birdie. Birdie then spent a year in prison for assault against anti-fascist activists that protest one of his concerts in uh, Ottawa back in 1997. And even to this day, uh, Birdie, now out of prison, still continues to make white supremacist music in Canada. Hmm. As, as for the guy I mentioned before, Tomas, uh, or Tomas uh, Winicky, he was eventually brought down by Warman as well through a human rights complaint under Section 13 that went all the way to the federal courts. The courts ruled that Winnicky needs to stop posting hate comments online. He continued posting and eventually spent two months in prison for this. 
He also was arrested while driving to attend a rally in support of Ernst Sundel, who was the Holocaust denier we mentioned earlier. Uh, he was basically traveling uh, to see him in Toronto when he was pulled over for a traffic violation and the police found illegal weapons in his vehicle. Uh. Winnicky, uh even ran for the mayor of London, Ontario in 2010. But he only earned 234 votes. Now, a quick, 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 quick question. Would he have been a better or a worse candidate than Ford? Well, mayor of London? <laughs> uh, definitely worse than Ford. But still interesting to note that a neo-Nazi ran for mayor in my city just uh, nine years ago. Yeah. And Winnicky is known around town for showing up to pride parades with homophobic messages. But he hasn't been actively doing that in the last few years. At least some of the people I know who are engaged in anti-fascist organizing haven't seen him in a while. But it is weird seeing pictures of Tomas uh, Winnicky online and sh- like seeing like, oh, hey, that's the pizza place I go to eat at. Oh, there's a neo-Nazi near it. <laughs> it's the, like, this, this is the beginning of your, of your sitcom, uh, you know, Jody starring in The Nazi Next Door. Here's the thing. You're going to find out by the end of this, like London comes up so much that I'm like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> like, like I, I moved here in 2015. So everything that we mentioned here uh, long since, well, not long since ended, but ended shortly before I got here. Well, they knew you were coming, Jody, and they all fled. With all that context out of the way, this is what Warman actually said. Did you know we had an election and the new cabinet hasn't been named yet? We still have scum in government, but we have to wait and see which scum goes where. Hmm. Ezra called this Jewish scum, but you can notice that Warman didn't use the word Jew here. No, certainly not immediately before the word scum. Right. So Warman's comments were in response to something that Winnicky had said, which was, so this is Winnicky's quote now. He says, is everything written there true? I'm surprised those ADL Jews print quotes such as Shoep, waving a noose, yelled to the crowd that he came to Kansas to speak the truth for my race, my people, my nation. Certainly that's something that might spark curiosity in not yet racist whites. So you can see here that Winnicky is talking about ADL Jews, not politicians. Mm. But you can guess... Maybe that you think scum applies to any of the groups Winnicky doesn't like, but it is rather kind of like nondescript as it stands in what Warman wrote. Yeah, which which kind of makes sense because Warman will say something vaguer than who his interlocutor is because he doesn't want to commit to saying something aggressively racist. That's probably uncomfortable to him, but wants the other person to read that into it while they're having the conversation. Exactly. The last example is, again, a paraphrase with words quoted. So Ezra claims that Warren said that gays were, quote, sexual deviants, quote, who were, uh, quote, cancer, quote. So you got two separate things that Ezra is claiming that Warren said, uh, Warman said, mm-hmm. sexual deviants and cancer. The full quote was, there's a reason it's called white nationalism. And why the founders of NS, so National Socialism, excluded sexual deviants that are like a cancer to our movement. So notice again that Ezra says that Warman said that gays were sexual deviants who were a cancer, but Warman never even mentioned gays. Yeah. He just said sexual it's deviants. Like, it's like Ezra, Ezra is hearing the quiet part loud and is just writing it in explicitly. So again, this is nondescript, 
It's not targeting any particular sexual deviant. And you can imagine some sexual deviants that Ezra might not uh, care that someone was calling out, like pedophiles, <laughs> you know. Now, I mean, there is a relationship between National Socialists uh, harming gay people, and that definitely exists. And so you can, again, read into what Warman is saying. But as we just said earlier, that there's a reason why Warman is being intentionally vague here. Hmm. But then Ezra ends this segment. So he, those are all the examples he gives. He then ends this segment by saying, this guy is so convincing in his neo-Nazi role that he should be in Hollywood teaching method acting. <laughs> uh sure as daniel day lewis of being a fake racist online through typing yes exactly because there's <laughs> there was very little acting in this it was merely typing through a keyboard yeah but you know that that's the true skill of an actor is to get the person reading it to do all the heavy lifting for you yeah <laughs> now there are certainly ethical concerns here about going undercover and trying to blend in with Nazis. But nothing here seems to violate Section 13, which is the claim that Ezra is making. In the decision for Warman v. Northern Alliance and Jason Uwendik, the agent of the commission decided in Warman's favor, but only gave him part of the remedy. Uwendik was ordered to cease discriminating online with the threat of fines, but Warman was denied, say, compensatory remedies. This is because Warman at first denied going undercover, but then eventually admitted to it. And this led the agent uh, of the commission concluding that, and this is the fourth quote. I do not see any acceptable reason for Mr. Warman to have participated on the Stormfront or Vanguard, Vanguard sites, since there appears to be ample, easily obtained messages on these sites available without his involvement. Moreover, it is possible that his activity in this regard could have precipitated further hate messages in response. Now, this decision came out probably after Ezra finished the book, but it could have made for a more interesting case against Warman abusing Section 13 violations. Although I will say I remain pretty firmly in the pro-Warman camp here for the work mm -hmm. he did basically uh, dismantling neo-Nazi organizations in Canada. Yeah. Which is the other thing. Ezra's whole point is that Nazis are not a problem. Yet I just went through several cases of Nazis behaving violently all while spreading vile hatred online. <laughs> uh, but how do you know that all of those Nazis who got in trouble and were dismantled by Warman weren't in and of themselves just undercover cops the whole time? <laughs> that definitely wouldn't have come out like in court. <laughs> like we're, we're going we're to live 20 years from now. They're going to be in jail. They're going to be like, just kidding, guys. I was, I was just kidding the whole time. <laughs> just they're all Spider-Mans, just all pointing at each other, the guards and the police officers. It's just Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So also, uh, Ezra claims that these websites were just filled with human rights lawyers, yet his only example is one cop and one human rights lawyer. All the other people involved are Nazis. Look, I think, look, look, in the same way that you want to give someone the benefit of the doubt if what they're saying is vague, Ezra wants to give these people the benefit of the doubt. You are a human rights lawyer or undercover cop until proven otherwise. <laughs> Lastly, Ezra keeps claiming that Warman was somehow orchestrating them to action, but Uwendik and Winicky were already active long before Warman got involved in their chat groups. So... And that, seems, that seems pretty open and shut there, then. <laughs> Next, Ezra gets into a case where Warman filed a complaint against a woman named Liz Lampman. Lampman wrote a letter mm -hmm. to the commission after receiving her complaint, 
And this is what she wrote. If you could read quote five. Oh boy. Oh yeah, it has her signed at the bottom here. Okay. <clears throat> I apologize for offending you or anyone else with the websites that I was associated with. I am no longer affiliated with those beliefs or the movement and haven't been for a while. I realize how wrong it was and completely removed myself from it. Ellipsis. I was not raised to be that way. I was raised in a Christian family and was taught to help others in need and love everyone, regardless of race, religion, or culture. My parents taught us that we are all equal. I was led astray by an ex-boyfriend and now realize the mistake I made in following him and being associated with him and his beliefs. That isn't me. I was the girl in grade school who befriended the new girl when nobody wanted to play with her because she was black. I was wrong in following that crowd, and I am sincerely sorry for anyone I may have hurt or offended through my actions. I am truly ashamed for having strayed so far from the good things I was taught. I am in the process of regaining my parents' trust, and this is a step in that direction. I hope you will accept my apology for my past misdoings. Thank you, Elizabeth Lampman. There was the ellipses in the middle there, and I don't think there's any like anything nefarious going on there, but I will say that I grabbed this letter from an archive of Ezra's blog years ago. And the thing is, so Ezra, when he changed from just being a normal dude to doing rebel media, he just transferred the EzraLevant.com to rebel.com. So all the old Ezra Levant blogs back from this time period are completely gone, but you can find Uh uh, archives and stuff. And so this is the only place I could find the, at least what I take to be the complete uh, letter by Lampman. Mm. But again, I don't think there's any nef- anything nefarious. And that's because when Lampman submitted this letter, after a complaint was filed against her by Warman, this was sufficient for Warman during the mediation phase, because after this, Lampman was dropped from the complaint and no further remedy was sought. Mm. However, in both the book and in the archives of Ezra's blog at the time, Ezra claims that it was the CHRC that let her go. Uh. And the reason for this is because what Warman is about to do next is a bit weird and we'll go through it. But Ezra is trying to paint this picture that like Warman didn't get his sweet, like he didn't like beat Lantman into submission and therefore like needs to get his revenge because the CHRC let her go. That's, that's the picture he's trying to paint. Right, right. Speaking of painting a picture, can I just say, I love when you refer to the idea that there's a transition from when Ezra went from being a normal person, like a regular guy, <laughs> to being what he is at Rebel. I'm picturing like an old Superman cartoon where he steps into the phone booth. It's like, and he comes out and he's a right wing provocateur. I say that even though like Ezra was just as shitty back then as he is now. I guess the difference is before he was just Ezra and now he's Rebel News. I run my own media empire, blah, 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 blah. It's got a different vibe to it. The one thing about this like whole notion of the CHRC being the one that let her go doesn't actually ring true because that wouldn't be what mediation is since both complainant and respondent need to be in agreement for something to be dropped like that. Yeah, you can't just make an executive decision uh, against the will of one of the parties to be like, we've mediated for you. This other yeah. person's fine. Or it could, because if they don't, you go to the next stage. So both parties agree and... So Warman would have been like, this is sufficient. She's made amends. We're good. Yeah. But I mean, that paints Warman in a positive light. And Ezra doesn't like that. So <laughs> you'll notice Warman is the enemy of Ezra in this whole section. here. Yeah. So he has to be painted as losing in a court-like framework, even though, as Ezra will remind you, 
these are not courts. So Ezra then makes the, the claim that Warman then got his hands on the letter, which implies some sort of intent. But since he was the complainant, he received a copy of the letter. <laughs> what what, ha- what happens next is a bit murky, but from what I can gather, a website for uh, what's called the One People's Project, which is a human rights slash social justice type advocacy group online, they posted a PDF of the letter written by Lampman. Then at some point after, and this is where it gets weird, Warman posted as axe to grind on the Vanguard News Network, a message reading. And so this is quote, this is what he wrote. PM Hale hasn't even finished his fight, but already we've seen many leaders in the church run for the exits with friends like these dot, 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 followed by a link to the PDF of the letter. So, to fill in some of the details there, Matthew Hale was a neo-Nazi who at the time was standing trial for threatening to murder a U.S. judge. He was eventually sentenced to 40 years in prison where he remains today. That's a big deal. Yeah, I don't think he's getting let out till 2037. Also, it doesn't exist according to Ezra. No, P.M. Hale is just... A, well, actually, this is, this is where it gets interesting because this is the one Nazi that Ezra somehow believes in. <laughs> <laughs> And it was like, no, no, you see this guy. This was the last Nazi, and then they got him. Yeah. The other thing is there. there's uh, in the church uh, run for the exit. So there was, uh, I can't remember the name. It's not It's not important, but there was a, a, a neo-Nazi organization that was called the Church of Something. I think the George Birdie guy, who was the Canadian fascist musician, he was a member of that group, I think. Uh. So another fascist organization. But then the idea is here is like, so... Uh, everyone's running away from the movement and with friends like these pointing to this PDF, okay? And another Vanguard member then responded to uh, Warman's post as Axe to Grind by saying, talking about kissing Jew boots. <laughs> so this this is how Ezra frames it, right? So he, he shows you the quote that uh, Warman wrote and he shows this response. And he's trying to paint a picture that Warman exposed her to danger. And he also uses uh, the inclusion of Matthew Hale as this example. Like, look, these are dangerous people. The one guy threatened to judge. And so you're like, you're using these things, right? Which you would think mm-hmm. Ezra's whole position is that somehow neo-Nazis are not dangerous and they're not a big problem. Yet he's trying to use that example of an actual neo-Nazi who's did something terrible to f- to make you really afraid of what's going to happen to Landman, right? Yeah, exactly. The Nazis are not a problem at all and not dangerous, except exactly when my narrative needs them to be. Right. But here's the other thing. That quote that talking about kissing Jew boots was not the complete uh, quote that the person responded to. So in full, mm-hmm. this is what the person wrote. Talking about kissing Jew boots, it sounded like she's young and the parents had a lot to do with her recanting. She'll be back. Which which tells me like this guy is like in its own delusion, whatever. But at least signals that these members are not overtly hostile to Landon for writing what she wrote. Right? Again, it's the opposite of what Ezra is framing rather than like, oh, I'm exposing her to danger because these Nazis are going to take action. And the Nazis are specifically leaning back being like, eh, she'll be fine. She'll be back. (laughs) No, exactly. So during Warman v. Lehmeyer, so we've 
our Lemire, Mark Lemire, uh, we brought up is the one that Ezra calls an alleged Nazi in the previous chapter two, part one segment. In that case, Warman v. Lemire, this posting of the letter to Vanguard News was brought up. Lemire's lawyer, who's Barbara Kulaska? (laughs) I can never pronounce it right. Kulaska. We'll just say that. Yeah, we we will agree to collectively mispronounce it Kulaska. She began to question Warman about uh, this post on Vanguard News Network. And Ezra mentions this exchange, but leaves out a lot of information. So I want you to read this first. This is Ezra's version of events that he writes in Shakedown. Quote six. During a legal hearing two years later, when Warman's secret identity as axe to grind was revealed, he was asked about his actions. At first, Warman made the laughable claim that he published her secret letter, quote, to show that individuals were willing to leave the Nazi movement and that people should be aware of that. But after a few minutes of cross-examination, he admitted that he hadn't really given uh, the morality of his action any thought. Quote, you weren't concerned about her security? No, he replied. The truth is, Mr. Warman, you don't care, correct? No, he admitted. So that's that's what Ezra, how he sums up the exchange. Yeah, you weren't concerned about his security? No, you didn't care? Nope. Right. Now, the other quote is accurate about him saying the reason why he did it was so that it would, like show other like what was it again it was something like showing the others that like people can leave and stuff like this yeah the people willing to leave the movement right. it's not like a, a lifetime commitment sort of thing right so now we're going to read the entire exchange or at least the, the entire portion that i think is relevant and so uh, i'll give you the option tim who do you want to be do you want to be the daring lawyer barbara kulaska or do you want to be richard warman the human rights activist who's going undercover. Oh, these are both such great options. Look, I'll, I'll go with Kalaska. All right. Let's do this. All right. This begins with Miss Kalaska. Before we leave that, I want to put it to you, Mr. Warman, that someone in good faith wrote that letter, and the next thing she knows, you posted it all over the internet on a site where she recants beliefs that probably many of these people believe in. Did it ever occur to you that this might lead to some problems for her? You're a person who is very concerned about your security. What? How about her security? You've asked a bit of a compound question, so the overall answer is no. You weren't concerned about her security? No. Again, you asked a compound question, so if you wish to break it down, then I'll respond to it. But if you're just going to continue with it as a global five-part question, then the answer is no. Okay, we'll go back. You agree that you did post or you put a link to this letter on the VNN or the Stormfront site, correct? On the message board? That's correct. And you made it clear uh, and you said, with friends like these, correct? That's what it says. So people on this message board click on that link and read the letter, correct? They could do that. Did it ever occur to you that you could put her security in jeopardy? So at this point, Mr. Warman has an exchange with the chair about where he can read the letter. Uh, And so I just cut that piece out because it's kind of irrelevant. No, I don't believe it's the type of letter that would do that. Then you don't believe uh, the people who frequent this forum would ever do anything to jeopardize her security, correct? That's not what I said. Uh, The truth is, Mr. Warman, you didn't care, correct? If that's a real question and not a rhetorical, the answer is no. (laughs) Wow, Ezra, Ezra really... Like, there should have been a lot of ellipses in his quoting of that, because <laughs> a lot of really important stuff there. A lot of really important stuff. Now, granted, the after the nose, I guess there's commas. 
<laughs> so maybe, maybe that indicates that they weren't finished thoughts. But uh, yes, he had his own sort of dramatic flourishings on that. Yeah, th- this is the Bill Barr version of editing things down. It's like, no, and then you keep that part, but then you take away the part that completely repudiates the impression that leaves. So uh, I have a question because I'm kind of conflicted with this, which is what do you think of Warman's final response? If taken literally, he is saying he does care, right? I mean, it's it's hard to like so, picture it like with uh, without tone, right? But she says you. It is a little bit hard to picture without tone. Because she says you didn't, you did not care, correct? Yeah, because that, that's a negative phrase of the question. And so, if he takes that literally, the answer is no, which is to imply that he does care, obviously, rather than him responding that that's obviously a leading question to imply I don't care. At least that's that's one way of interpreting it. The other is I can I can also see was like you didn't care and it's like no I didn't or like but it's hard to yeah, like yeah. it's hard to get that without tone and of course like yeah and at the same time I'm only assuming that he means that yes he does care because by singling out like he wouldn't be going against the rhetorical implication and and like centering out the the literal meaning of it if what he was trying to say is no I absolutely didn't care you're right to imply that right and the other thing is this comes in the middle of like. Uh, three days of interactions with this lawyer <laughs> and like even from the start of this the transcript i didn't read the whole thing but there's definitely moments in here where warman's just like what are we doing like <laughs> this is so stupid and you're asking questions that are completely irrelevant mm. and and i guess like before we move on what what do you think of the ethics of uh warman actually posting lampman's letter so i mean as a naive person, naive to the general practices of, of Nazis and, and online neo-Nazis, I, I can see at least the superficial implication that you could be putting somebody in danger by, by saying, oh, well, you know, this is somebody repudiating the views that you claim to hold. Uh, you know, might that not make you mad? But I suppose the, the potential counter-argument to that, if you kind of steel man woman's position, is if he knows what the general rhetorical approach of this group of Nazis is like, and therefore he's confident that the angle he's framing it with is going to lead to them saying things like, ah, she'll be back. Or, you know, you're doing it as a de-radicalizing thing where it's like, oh no, our movement is hopeless because people leave and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, Then maybe you can make a better case that he would know ahead of time. It's not going to be very risky. Yeah. The other thing, uh, at least the issue that I have with it is like maybe the issue of consent that uh, in nowhere do I think uh, he asked Lampman if this was okay to do. Right, right. Oh, well, yeah, and I can see your point on that, which is if the only way these neo-Nazis could have been exposed to that letter is by virtue of Warman posting it that way, then there's a definite consent element to this was not written for the audience of neo-Nazis. This is definitely going against that lady's intended communication. Yeah, that's my only issue. Like, But I don't think that like makes Warman the most evil person in the world either. <laughs> like, I think there's possibly like... Uh, uh, noble reasons for wanting to do it if the reasons are what he says they are, which is to try to make people feel like their movement is inevitably going to die because people are leaving, right? Yeah, I also get a kind of hindsight as 2020 element on this because he seems to call that they're not going to have a negative reaction to this. And then the the quote that Ezra misquotes to imply they are having a reaction to it is them exactly not having that negative reaction. Yeah, exactly. Remember though, even if Warman posting the letter rubs you the wrong way, you have to consider that this bears no relevance on the Lemire case itself, which we'll get into in a second. But basically, the Lemire case surrounds posts that Lemire allowed on his website, freedomsite.org. 
as well as stuff he posted himself all over neo-Nazi websites. Warman could be the biggest asshole known to man, and that wouldn't change the evidentiary basis for the complaint. Mm. And this is raised throughout the sort of transcript by Warman and his lawyer, which is like, how is this relevant at all to the case we're dealing with? <laughs> well, I suppose Ezra's framing would be like, but did you just convince this person with your amazing method acting to become a Nazi? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I guess like what they're trying to do is say that somehow Warman's tactics undermine the whole thing. But they really don't, right? Like, if you're going to follow some sort of legal procedure, the appropriate thing to do would be to file a complaint against Warman or file some sort of lawsuit against Warman, not to somehow use as your defense in this case. Because here's the thing is, at the end of the day, they have no defense, right? They were neo-Nazis that all posted neo-Nazi shit online. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, this isn't like a kind of procedural hang-up sort of thing. If Warman has some separate liability in connection to that, that doesn't invalidate the, the basic evidentiary basis of, oh, you're demonstrably a neo-Nazi. Right, exactly. The next complaint that Ezra makes in this chapter is that in August 2006, a human rights complaint was filed against Warman himself. Ezra claims this case was then dismissed because the person who filed it was someone the CHRC was already investigating. Ezra also claimed that in this decision to dismiss that CHRC investigator said about Warman in the dismissal, that he did repost some material that could be found to be in violation of Section 13 of the CHRA. And that his, and again, so Ezra quoted that chunk but then he skips and quotes another chunk, which is that, and that his, quote, actions do amount to communicating hate messages. So again, I have no, that's not a full sentence, so things are missing. Yeah. <laughs> Jody, honestly, what has Ezra ever done to make you think that if he partially quotes something, he's being intellectually dishonest? <laughs> well, a chapter and a half. <laughs> Every other example we've reviewed, yeah. Like, here's the thing: is we're a chapter and a half into this book, and I've already seen a pattern here. <laughs> yeah, it's not promising, is it? No. Given that complaints this early on are not released, since it wasn't a tribunal decision, finding out if any of this were true was next to impossible for me. <laughs> My first hint was in a video I found from May 2008 where Ezra is debating a man named Ian Fine, who was, at the time, Ezra debated him, the executive director of the Canadian Human Rights Commission. And this debate took place on CPAC, which, for Amer American listeners, is basically our version of C-SPAN, which is what you can mm -hmm. watch like your congressmen yelling at each other. <laughs> During this debate, Ezra brings up a complaint made by someone named Andrew Giel. However... This doesn't perfectly match because Giel himself was not under investigation. His sister mm. Melissa was. And a PDF of oh. his complaint was available online, which didn't contain anything like the mishmashed quotes that Ezra mentions. And also, when I read the complaint, it was submitted April 2006, not August. In the debate, however, this uh, CPAC debate, Ezra does complain about this dismissal in similar ways. And you might wonder why it was a, it was not eventually included in the book. So hmm. I'm going to get into it. <laughs> I suppose we're left with that conundrum of like, 
is is it in fact the same case, but Ezra is sloppy in his description of it, or are they related matters that he felt no need to disclose the connections? I will get to it. I think I found the case, but we'll, we'll get to it in a second. For now, we'll just right. cover this uh, Giel's guy. That's tantalizing. I like that. Giel, uh, his complaint was that an anti-racist website called Recom Network was posting the decision uh, decisions of Warman's human rights complaints. And Giel argued that this violated Section 13, since the decisions contained the same language that the CHRC had ruled violated Section 13. Ah, yes. This is the classic rhetorical maneuver. If you point out a racist, you're the real racist. If you point out a dog, you're the real dog. Well, I think it's actually kind of worse than that. I think what Giel is saying is that because the words themselves were the problem that got the Section 13 complaint. Yeah, it's like the words that activate the Necronomicon. It doesn't matter what your intent was. If you quote someone else saying them, the the deadites are still coming for you. Right. So the Canadian Anti-Racist Education and Research Society, which owned the website Recom Network, responded that their goal is to educate and not spread hate. And the commission uh, investigator agreed with them, determining that Giel's complaint was frivolous and dismissed it. Hmm. Andrew, in case you were wondering, was a member of the Canadian Heritage Alliance, which his sister Melissa led. She is also, for what it's worth, the ex-girlfriend of Mark Lemire. Oh. As well as Jason Uendik. Yeah, I mean, it's a tight-knit community. The Canadian Heritage Alliance was based out of Kitchener and Waterloo, and... Warman got another successful decision at the Human Rights Commission regarding Melissa Giel and the Canadian Heritage Alliance website. A lot of the posts on the website talked about destroying the Zionists that control the media and government. Mm -hmm. And Melissa defended these statements as the truth. Ah. So not only was the website bad because it hosted these conversations, but Melissa Giel was also uh, a part of the complaint because she endorsed these statements. Yeah, when she weighs into editorialize, she's like, ah, no, it's the truth, though, about the <laughs> Right. She did say we should try to keep it a bit more quiet, though. But that's not <laughs> that's not de- denying the, the truth of, of it, right? <laughs> yeah, you want to be a quiet racist, if possible. Right. Which is the thing. We aren't dealing with dog whistles yet. Like, you, you might see the beginning stage of trying to dog whistle it. But this is still overt white nationalism and neo-Nazi shit. <laughs> However, that didn't stop Ezra from including the complaints of other Nazis, but that is probably because Andrew Giel, like the reason why he didn't include him, he was also a convicted uh, of distributing child pornography. What? So <laughs> Nazis to Ezra seem fine, but convicted child pornography distributing Nazis cross a line. <laughs> you can only be one kind of bad thing, not... <laughs> Also, in the Warman v. Canadian Heritage Alliance and Melissa Giel uh, decision, the agent of the commission wrote this about Warman. So I'm going to have you read the quote. This is quote number eight. With respect to the fact that Mr. Warman might have posted on the Canadian Heritage Alliance website or other websites material that could be contrary to Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act, the tribunal finds that no conclusive evidence was tendered showing that this was the case. This said... If the respondents feel that Mr. Warman has contravened Section 13 of the Act, they can themselves file a complaint with the Canadian Human Rights Commission. So you can see there's a lot of similarity between all these cases. And part of that is because they're all getting the same legal representation. And they're all trying the same tactics, which is to point out that there's all these problems with Warman. And as this commissioner lays out pretty clear, 
if you have an issue with what Warman's doing, file a complaint. <laughs> like, arguing within your complaint doesn't help your case. Yeah. <laughs> and also, this basically undermines the quote Ezra claims exists in the dismissed complaint that I can't find. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know. It was also in a 2008 decision that Ezra would have had access to before he went to print. So it's like weird that he would quote the one thing that he thinks uh, dismisses uh, Warman, but won't include the thing that shows that he's perfectly fine and didn't violate section uh, 13. I'm sure he just had, you know, a word limit for the chapter. He had to make some cuts. <laughs> oh, man. Imagine if this chapter was longer. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I've written more than this whole chapter was. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's that's the classic, isn't it? Is that if somebody writes like garbage, it always takes more words to unpack that and redress it than it does to say it. <laughs> so, as I said, I think I did eventually find the person Ezra was referring to in his book. That's good. But I could not find a PDF of the dismissal itself. And part of that because like... I don't know, either it was posted on a blog that eventually, maybe like Ezra posted it initially, but now his blog's gone and I can't access it or whatever. The reason why I found this is because an anti-racist site mentions a complaint filed by this person named Alexand Kobashian, and it was filed around the August timeline. And so that's why I think that it's likely this case. Hmm. Alexan, again, Ezra doesn't mention the person's name, so of course I couldn't just know that this is who he's talking about but those are the the Giel case and the Alexan case or the Giel case and the Kobashian cases are the only cases I can find that someone filed against Warman and that both were dismissed right you mentioned before that that some of the cases against Warman had the same legal representation oh we'll get to it that's that'll be a secret okay. <laughs> I can't wait to discover this uh this pro bono Nazi lawyer Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep Imagine, imagine the TV ad. It's like, have you gotten in trouble for being an open racist? We're here to help. Oh, my God. You don't even know. Alexan Kobashian, along with James Richardson, created a group called the Canadian Ethnic Cleansing Team and posted on websites such as Tri-City Skins, as in skidheads in the Tri-City area, which is Kitchener, Cambridge, and Waterloo. Wait, wait, wait. Let me stop you right there, Jody. So they're advertising a service where it's a, a, a cleaning service where everyone who works there is ethnic, right? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> uh, I wish. I wish that's what they were doing. Then it's the other ethnic cleansing then? Okay, just... Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the bad kind. <laughs> the, the, the kind we don't want. Uh, I mean, we can laugh because they basically were ruined, so... <laughs> yeah. Well, like, I, I, it's serious matters, but it's hard not to laugh at just how nakedly, absurdly on the nose it is while Ezra's there being like, oh, there's no Nazis, there's no real Nazis, get out of here. <laughs> they're not real, they're just, they're just good, the Canadian ethnic cleansing team. Every one of these people is either a sincere racist who wouldn't have done anything unless people like Warman showed up, or we're going to learn years from now they're all undercover cops. Well, we, we know in this instance that Kolbashian and Richardson did actually get arrested for things that they did prior to the human rights complaint. So <laughs> I, I doubt they're undercover cops. Oh, no, that's the long con. That's how you build up legitimacy. There's, there's a bunch of old Hong Kong movies, but that's exactly what you do. 
you're an undercover cop who spends time in prison. But basically, these websites don't exist anymore because Warman, again, filed a human rights complaint against Alex Kolbashian, James Scott Richardson, TriCitySkins.com, Canadian Ethnic Cleansing Team, and AffordableSpace.com. So they had several other uh, websites as well, and they were all under the umbrella of this AffordableSpace.com. Hmm. Yep. And again, it was decided in Warman's favor, so they had to dis- cease and desist posting uh, racist shit online. And uh, had to pay some money. Mm. But I don't want to editorialize here, but like, it, it sounds like what Warman did was a net good. And I don't entirely get why Ezra seems to think it's so bad. <laughs> think about where we're at right now. Warman <laughs> is dedicated to fighting these Nazis who are all violent criminals who have like had prison times and other things. Yeah. And Ezra's trying to deny that any of this exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, the Warman is morally in the wrong because he's crusading against people who aren't there, except when they are there and also in prison. Now it gets worse, though. We'll get to it. Uh... But for, for right now, Ezra's going to take a brief pause from his current line of argumentation, and he's going to then divert to criticizing anti-fascists of the past. Ah. So he starts with an incident involving a Canadian security intelligence service agent named Grant Pristow. Now, for those who don't know, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, which is called CSIS up here, is basically like the Canadian version of the CIA. And so they had this undercover guy named Grant Pristow, and Ezra's going to talk about him. Ezra claims that Grant actively helped to build the Heritage Front into Canada's largest neo-Nazi group, and claims that Grant and CSIS tried to use the Heritage Front as a political weapon by infiltrating the Canadian Reform Party. Mm. So in other words, he believes in this conspiracy theory where the Canadian government uh, used Grant to infiltrate the neo-Nazis, build them up, create them to to be more powerful, and then use them to infiltrate the Canadian Reform Party, which just happens to be the party that Ezra was involved with. Oh, I see. It is true that Grant Bristow was one of the founding members of the Heritage Front, but it is less clear that he was responsible for its growth. In fact, Bristow was responsible for several arrests given his involvement in the movement. He also was credited with stopping many acts of violence, including a possible murder of the leader of the Canadian Jewish Congress. Oh. So some of the arrests that he got was there was a convention where they had uh, Tom Metzger, who's a famous like American neo-Nazi, and they basically crossed the border into Canada secretly for this like event. And Bristow tipped off the police who then came, raided the event and arrested Tom Metzger and sent him back to the United States. So you could tell, like, even though he was a founding member of the Heritage Group, uh, Heritage Front, as like an undercover agent, he was doing things to undermine them. Yeah, I mean, he was there. It was building up. But that was just him trying to be in on the ground floor to intervene against them. Right. But it also tries to promote this idea that Grant was the one doing everything. But here's the thing. So we're going to give a bit more of the backstory. Grant began by infiltrating the National Party of uh, the Nationalist Party of Canada back in 1988 under what was called Operation Governor. And it was there that he met this individual named Wolfgang Drogue. And Drogue, he was returning from the US after uh, coming out of prison for weapon and trafficking charges. Bristow realized that Drogue was the real deal, not like any of these Nationalist Party people he was already involved in. And if anything was to happen, it would be through him. So 
Bristow started to like follow Drogue and get more involved in what he was doing rather than the sort of more bureaucratic Nationalist Party members. Yeah, you don't want to just target the paperwork Nazis. Right. I mean, because here's Drogue, he's getting into crimes, he's doing all these things. But Drogue was actually involved in something really fascinating. I don't know if you've ever heard of Operation Red Dog. Oh, I've heard that said before. So this was a plan in 1981 that was organized by American and Canadian white supremacists to take over the Dominica. (laughs) And it involved uh, Don Black, who would later create Stormfront, uh, the website. And the operation was also linked to Ron Paul, who many of the organizers claim he knew about it at the time. (laughs) But there's plenty of, you can listen to other podcasts that go into detail about Ron Paul's involvement in this weird white supremacist thing. But for anyone who's heard that story before. They must have promised him some precious gold bars. (laughs) Yes. So one of Canada's most famous neo-Nazis was involved in trying to take over the Dominica uh, back in the 80s. Hmm. Drogue eventually became frustrated with the Nationalist Party because, again, he's the more angry type. He doesn't like all this formal bureaucratic stuff. And he formed the Heritage Front in 1989 with the help of Grant Bristow, but also others. So it's not like Bristow was like the sole person working with him. Hmm. In the early 90s, especially after a riot in 1993 that led to the arrest of that musician we mentioned earlier, George Birdie. Bristow started to realize that his infiltration of the group would be harder to maintain without the potential for violence, given the rise of anti-fascist groups putting pressure on them. So he knew that eventually violence was going to happen and he would have to do something. And he didn't want to do anything and he didn't want to blow his covers. So he's realizing, like, I'm in a weird spot here, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the most important part in every undercover movie is that real violent crimes are about to happen Do I allow the crimes to happen, which is unconscionable, to maintain my cover, or do I have to blow everything up now? Right. And so he did what I think is the good thing, which is he decided to take several breaks and go on vacations and, like, communicated that to Drogue and all this fun stuff. And eventually he realized that Drogue's power was waning and he realized he might be potentially singled out as, like, a second in command and be raised to leader and he didn't want to be leader obviously so he he kind of resigned and left and basically operation governor ended in 1994 that's the option that never happens in uh, undercover movies is i'm actually just going to go on vacation when everything gets tense and then when i come back everything wound down when i wasn't there okay that's fine that's a very different version of the departed for example (laughs) as you could tell drogue was doing a lot of this on his own long before bristow got involved i mean Bristow showed up way after Drogue already tried to invade the Dominica, for example. (laughs) As for the allegations that the Heritage Front's involvement in the Reform Party was really some secret conspiracy with the government government working through Bristow, in reality, this has more to do with an individual named Al Overfield, who's also an interesting character. Hmm. And he was an indigenous person, but also a white supremacist, which is also uh, very odd. Unique combination, though. Yes. Al was involved with a lot of white supremacist groups, including the Nationalist Party of Canada, where he met Drogue, long before Bristow was in the picture. For example, Alan himself was involved in Operation Red Dog. His role was securing weapons uh, for the attempted takeover of the Dominica. Mm. Now, as the Reform Party was getting started, they were not supplied security. So like the liberals and the conservatives, they had the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and they like 
held security so no one could like you know punch the prime minister or something right yeah they, they don't they don't like it when you do that right and so preston manning who was the leader of the reform party was getting worried that because of his increasing status uh so you know eventually reform party became the leader or became the official opposition party at one point so they eventually became a quite a big party yeah i didn't know that before they collapsed you're going to be a lot more weirded out about the reform party after this once you, <laughs> once you know they got that big uh oh, so as they were getting started, they didn't have these security. So Overfield, who knew people involved in the Reform Party and became a member himself, got involved uh, in the early 90s and was put in charge of supplying security, where he then hired Droge, Bristow, and other Heritage Front members to run security for the party, with the idea that they would use this as a kind of recruiting tool. Right. Now, there are issues internally that came out through some of the things that Bristow claimed, which is that Jaroge was planning on taking over the Reform Party, basically. And eventually... What? Yeah. And eventually it all came out and there was like a huge row. There's actually like questions about whether or not Stephen Harper knew about the Heritage Front's uh, involvement with the Reform Party. Mm. He claims he denies it. Overfield says that he Harper knew. And then Harper became our prime minister. <laughs> yeah, that's like this is a lot of Nazis shockingly close to really high seats of power. But um. also, all this that I'm telling you was known in 1994 because there was a bunch of like commissions and stuff that were held based on it. And Ezra would have had access to the information when writing this book since it happened. Oh, I was assuming that you got all this information from Ezra because he's so intellectually honest about it. <laughs> No, not at all. Oh, okay. Ezra basically just in a couple paragraphs goes, oh, look, Bristow somehow built up the Heritage Front. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. That the, the one cop in their midst, he, he did the whole thing to discredit the party I like. Well, not only that, funny that Ezra, who was a Reform Party member in, 19, he, I think he started in 1997, would want to say that his party's connection to the Heritage Front was some sort of grand conspiracy rather than evidence that the Reform Party was close enough to the Heritage Front to appear as a good place for recruitment to a neo-Nazi organization? Yeah, like that wouldn't work for a lot of political parties for, for just ideological reasons. <laughs> That's the first example of the past. And again, so much context there that Ezra just doesn't get into. <laughs> the other example that Ezra has uh, from the past is of this case of a man named John Garrity who in the 1960s infiltrated the Canadian Nazi Party. And the Canadian part, Nazi Party at the time was being run by a guy named John Beatty. Right. Garrity was hired by the, by the Canadian Jewish Congress to investigate the Canadian Nazi Party. But Ezra claims that Garrity ended up using the uh, Canadian Jewish Congress's money to build the Canadian Nazi Party. Uh-huh. In reality, the only money that the CJC spent was on money for Garrity to drive around. <laughs> And also on a bottle of rum that he presented at a party. Yeah, but I mean, come on, that sweet gas money, a single bottle of rum. And here's the thing is, Ezra knew about this before he published the book because other people already complained to him because he wrote about this in like magazine articles before he published Shakedown. <laughs> right. So it's like he could have corrected this, but he still claims in Shakedown that the CJC spent money to build up the Canadian Nazi party. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, you have to really strip it of all context and be like, spent money. I mean, if he had to walk instead of drive, yeah. imagine how much less effective he would have been. 
Well, I mean, that's part of Ezra's argument is like that rum was like Popeye spinach to him. He made him more powerful. Yeah, well, because like BD was this down. If he didn't have a driver, he would have just been left to his own devices and he would have like flopped around. And like maybe that's like kind of true. But like Garrity also like when you I was reading a lot of scholars who've looked into this because obviously this is a really interesting case for the 1960s. And Garrity played this role basically. So I guess the, the Canadian Nazi Party was receiving memberships and Garrity was going through it and basically discarded the memberships of like strong young men that would have fit the profile to like fit well into a Nazi party and basically prevented them from actually entering the party, thus basically destroying the party from within by basically not having members that are like committed enough, strong enough and all that fun stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. You're only admitting the wishy-washy Nazis, causing an existential crisis for all the dedicated Nazis who are like, I can't, I'm not racist enough. I can't believe it. <laughs> and so not only so, he played the role from destroying them uh, from within, but then also when he left the, when he basically exposed what he did in 1966. So he wrote an article in McLean's magazine, which is ironic given that, given that McLean magazine is one that's going to destroy the Section 13 stuff that we're going to get into. Oh, boy. He wrote in McLean's magazine in 1966, exposing the fact that he infiltrated the group and basically embarrassed and belittled John Beatty and basically, you know, tanked the Canadian Nazi party because everyone thought they were a joke. Hmm. So not only did he destroy them from within, but when he came out, he destroyed them from without. Yeah, it's a, it's a public humiliation. And yet Ezra says that they funded it and built it up. And like the reason, why, the reason why he's doing this is because Ezra wants to paint this picture that that you need to create Nazis where there are none. Right? That's the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Ezra's just taking a Hegelian argument here, which is by saying by actively opposing the Nazis and destroying them, you're making them turn in on themselves and gain an inner strength. <laughs> But also, like, both of these stories mean very little in the context of Ezra's overall argument. He seems to be saying that, like the HR, uh, HRCs, there have always been cases where overzealous Nazi hunters go undercover and end up helping rather than hurting the organizations they claim to not like. However, all of these examples are baseless, as I just went through and pointed that out. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I, I can, I'll say this in Ezra's credit. These examples are exactly as valid as the human rights ones he's going but it's worse than that, since the only name Ezra mentions associated with human rights cases is Mark Lemires. The Giels, Uendik, Winicky, Kobashian, all these people are never mentioned. I mentioned them through the details I've provided. They, they don't have a single line in this book pointing to them. Really? Nor are there details of what they did. It's all, there's this case, this person says here, here's a quote. No, I'm looking back at the earlier quotes and the ones from, yeah, he just describes like, this thing happened, no details. Right. Now, Ezra might claim that the details are besides the point, or even that the details would bias the reader against these bigots who really did nothing wrong because freedom of speech should trump everything. <laughs> I don't want to cloud my audience's mind with all of the various counterfactuals to the lies I'm telling. It's even worse than that. So this isn't in the book. But Ezra, while he's on that CPAC debate, you know that old poem that's like, first they came for, and then, you know, first it came for the socialists, yeah, and yeah, I did yeah. nothing. Ezra literally says in the CPAC debate, first they went for a neo-Nazi, but I'm not a neo-Nazi, <laughs> so I didn't care. <laughs> 
This wasn't a public issue until a few months ago. Why? Because first they went, went for the neo-Nazis, but I wasn't a neo-Nazi, so I didn't care. Then they went for the far-right-wingers like Ezra Levant, but I wasn't far-right-wing, so I didn't care. Then they went, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Father Nemo from the Holocaust, you know, first they went for the Jews. Wait, 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 who's the they? Because the they's originally the Nazis. <laughs> first the Nazis came for themselves, and I did nothing because that's, that's just a problem solving itself? I don't know. Well, apparently to him, the Canadian Human Rights Commissions are basically the Nazis. They're the new Nazis. Are they the real neo-Nazi? No, yeah. This is not very good. No, but like, it, it's amazing to me that a Jew would rewrite that poem with Nazi in it. <laughs> like, it, it fucking blew my mind. I can see why Faith Goldie was so comfortable with him. But also, so here's, here's the big problem for his... The narrative problem, I shall say, because obviously there's huge fucking problems here. But the narrative problem is that Ezra's argument in the book is that Nazis don't really exist, that they're being made up by the commissions in order so that they still seem relevant. And if you're going to make that argument, ignoring all the Nazis in the story and their crimes is intentionally misleading. Like there's no other way around it. The fact that he left all their names off, all the cases off, and doesn't bring any of them up is intentionally misleading. Not to mention that all of these people were being represented in various capacities by Nazi sympathetic lawyers like Doug Christie and Barbara Kulaska, who Ezra fails to name. So not you. we know it's Barbara Kulaska because I quoted the actual speech, but notice he never tells that it's Barbara Kulaska. Wait a minute, Joe, did you trick me into reading the part of a Nazi sympathetic lawyer? I, you ch you chose her all by yourself. I gave you the option. This is some some Darren Brown uh, mental manipulation here. You led me right into that. Yeah, maybe I like sold her much more <laughs> compellingly. I don't know. Yeah, you were like, this is a lawyer in a human rights court. Uh, how could that possibly be something bad? So as I said, Doug Christie, Barbara Kulaska, both uh, very Nazi sympathetic lawyers. The, the other person that represented a lot of these clients was somebody named Paul Frum, who is way too big to get into, but he's involved in pretty much every right-wing neo-Nazi thing in Canada. Also was involved in the mm -hmm. Reform Party, everything. So he's he goes way back, and he's still around, and I think he's in Hamilton, but he's, he's uh, not good. Not good. But he's not a lawyer, but he was there somehow as representation for these people. Because it's not a real like court. He was, I guess, I don't know, yeah, some yeah. sort of. He's, he's just giving you know Nazi moral support, right? <laughs> if you got enough fingers and enough Nazi pies, like you just got to be there to represent, right? And again, Doug Christie, Barbara Kulaska, and Paul Frum never mentioned by Ezra in this whole thing. Oh, that's so incredible. Yeah, Barbara's memorial as well. So she died in 2017. And her funeral or memorial service was attended by several white supremacist groups and Holocaust deniers, which caused a huge controversy in Toronto, where even like the mayor of the city was like, let's not have this event, <laughs> which was a memorial service for someone. Yeah, you're crossing a pretty big line when it's like, do not mourn your dead friend because you're all awful racist. <laughs> <laughs> We're nearing the end. So in the final section of the chapter, Ezra complains that the tribunals are too, are too secretive. And that court should be more transparent. So like courts, they should be more transparent. Now, the argument doesn't really hold, uh, though, for two reasons. The first is that, again, commissions aren't courts. We've been over this. And second, there are still plenty of reasons why courts keep certain things secret. It's a standard practice. <laughs> so I don't even know what he's getting at, but okay, sure. 
Ezra then accuses the CHRC of hacking someone's Wi-Fi to post some of the incendiary comments on the neo-Nazi forums. Wait, hacking someone's Wi-Fi as in they hacked into a private citizen's Wi-Fi to pretend to be them to post Nazi posts? Not to pretend to be them. Like, I still can't follow it along, but like apparently they used to hide the fact that it was coming from... Yeah, no, I think it was like more like an IP address. Like they weren't like... Oh, so they're like spoofing the IP address. Right, like I don't think they were like pretending to be the person. Now, the claim was came from a Bell Canada employee, sort of like, I guess through some kind of subpoena, basically said that this happened. And then a privacy commission was set up to basically figure out what the hell was going on. It ruled in January 2009, and this was probably around the time where Ezra's book was going to the press. So he couldn't have put this in the thing, but the mm. privacy commission ruled that there was absolutely no evidence to support this. <laughs> now, okay. In fairness to Ezra, he didn't know that at the time of writing, but he's, yeah. he gets really like, Oh my God, the HRC like hacked into a civilian who like didn't even know it was ha- <laughs> right. Like, of course he Ezra's it up. We, we, can't, we can't blame Ezra for not knowing things that would only be revealed in the future, but in terms of latching <laughs> on to things that turn out to be false, man, he sure can pick them. Lastly, uh, Ezra describes an instance where a CHRC investigator named Dean Stacy was questioned by, again, Kalaska and Doug Christie this time, regarding information he received from a London police officer named Terry Wilson. The information that he received from this police officer was, atta- was obtained by a warrant or at least Terry Wilson had the warrant, in the raid on the Canadian ethnic cleansing team. So I'm confused. I, I thought that Ezra claimed that they don't need warrants. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is the police officer has the warrant to, to raid oh, the yeah, ethnic yeah. Well, cleansing that's, team. Yeah. Yeah. Police are proper authorities, I forgot. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. But <laughs> what happened was, during the complaint against Kolbashian and Richardson, Stacy basically got Terry Wilson in to give them evidence. And some of that evidence was the stuff that they got through the warrant. And Doug Christie, while sort of like investigating Stacy, kind of like prods and is like, well, do you know that Terry Wilson talked to his superiors to make sure that he could give you this material he gained through a warrant? And Stacy's like, no. He's like, and, and that's what like Ezra sort of quotes. But when you read the actual, like, again, the full transcript stacy's like that's not my job that's his job like he can check it out <laughs> yeah. why, why, why would i have to babysit a police officer like that <laughs> exactly <laughs> so wait so is ezra framing that as like a gotcha moment or yep well this is evidence of basically again it's that iran iran stuff which is that the the courts can gain info like he talks about how warrants are these sacred things and uh, <laughs> that somehow this like breached something. Yeah, but if a police officer said that information and, and didn't get their superior's permission, that that would be the version of that that's a problem, isn't it? Right, and it would be the police officer who's the problem, not the, the Human Rights Commission, because he shouldn't have said that. Yeah, for example, like if I ask you, Jody, can you give me the keys to your house and all of your belongings? And you were like, oh, sure, and you handed it over. You, you know, if, if your wife gets mad at someone, she's getting mad at you, not me. Because it was your responsibility to guard those things, not my responsibility to not ask for them. But not only that, so Stacy is still employed with the commission, so he clearly didn't lose his job over this. 
And uh, even Terry Wilson continued on as a police officer. was never sanctioned over this. So It's almost like it's not a problem. That's what I think. <laughs> this is the last hurrah. Ezra says this as we're going out of the chapter. So I'm going to get you to read it. Quote number nine. There's an old legal maxim that says justice must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. Canada's HRCs have set Canada back in regard to both objectives. Their lawless practices have not only undermined centuries-old principles of due process and natural justice, they have eroded public confidence in the rule of law. They have brought the administration of justice into dispute, and they have turned legitimate police forces into political tools. And amazingly, They've done so without most Canadians noticing. The thing like, I love about this is p- part of what he's setting up is like, all this is going on and no one is aware of it. And no one was aware of it because it wasn't as bad as he's making it out to be. Yeah, it's like no one's aware of the procedural details that are all perfectly fine and what you'd expect them to be. And yet, as we know through like the spoiler alert, Ezra was kind of integral in getting rid of Section 13. So like through this fear-mongering, he actually affected legislation. Uh now there's one last thing we need to get to. So we're done with the, the chapter itself, but we already went through that none of the Nazis and lawyers were named, except for one, Mark Lemire. Yes, this is the payoff. We know that Ezra has referred to him as a, quote, alleged white supremacist. Now, yep. Definitely no fact of the matter. That's just what unreliable people say. Now, if I had to get you to guess, what group did you think that Lemire was alleged to belong to? <sighs> See, I, okay, I, I got like the Northern Alliance, got the Canadian Heritage. So, see, I, see, I, 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 I was going to say the Northern Alliance or Canadian Heritage, but if I wanted to go for what the funniest one would be, it would be the one that has Nazi in the title. <laughs> no, it's not the the Canadian Nazi Party that got disbanded ah, yeah. like in the sixties or whatever. Uh, I didn't realize how effectively they'd been disbanded. But But it is, though, the biggest neo-Nazi group in all of Canada, the Heritage Front. Right. Which, if I would remind you, is the one with uh, Drogue, uh, who was the guy who tried to take over the Dominica. Yeah, like like having a normal one. We've all tried to do that now and then. That doesn't necessarily make you a Nazi. Now, what role do you think Lemire played in the organization? Uh, Maybe something pretty central. Like, I mean, if I were to go for maximum irony here, if he had a comparable role to the, uh, the, the undercover guy that Ezra was trying to demonize for this, that would be the funniest answer. Lamar was president of the Heritage Front from 2001 until the Heritage Front d- dissolution in 2005. Wait, wait, I, mean, I think I misheard you. Did you say president? Yes, he replaced Droge as the president of the Heritage <laughs> Front in 2001. <laughs> And this is after alleged, alleged yeah. <laughs> And this is after Droge had uh, killed himself, or not killed himself. He got killed in a, a drug. Uh, I guess he was dealing drugs, and the guy who was trying to buy the drugs got spooked and shot him in the face. Uh, uh. Yeah, so that's how Droge ended up dying, and then because of that, Lemire became the president of the Heritage Front. Now, <laughs> let's play devil's advocate here. What if this guy, he has no interest in being a neo-Nazi. He just really cares about leadership and administration. Well, this is where things get really interesting. Ezra, <laughs> along with conservative bloggers Mark and Constance Fournier, basically ran a campaign to deny Lemire's connection to the Heritage Front. 
even when the evidence was so blatantly obvious. For example, there were Heritage Front newsletters announcing him as the leader. The PO That's pretty awesome. <laughs> the PO box for the Heritage Front was Lemire's address. <laughs> the website that Lemire ran called Freedom Site, which was uh, which was the main source for uh, the human rights complaints that Warman filed, was also the host of the Heritage Front's website. <laughs> and the organization changed its logo to a picture of Lemire's face just winking knowingly. Yeah. <laughs> Even the Toronto Sun, which ran a piece in 1994 exposing the identity of Grant Bristow, mentioned Lemire's involvement with the Heritage Front. Now, Ezra worked at the Sun at the time of, uh, uh, shortly after, I think, writing this book uh, on their cable news programming. And he also used that reporting in this book to make the claim that Bristow played a role in the growing in growing the Heritage Front. And we talked about yeah. that earlier. So he used reporting yeah. that mentions Lemire as being involved with the Heritage Front <laughs> and still claims that he's an alleged white supremacist. I feel like there was a metaphor for that where, like, you know, you have a body of evidence, but you only, like, it's like you were in an orchard of cherries or something. And you're just picking the ones that serve your purposes. Uh, if only we had a saying for that. <laughs> and all of this was available to Ezra at the time he was writing this book. Yeah. In 2010, so now we're past the book, on Ezra's yes. cable TV show on Sun Media, Lamira was a guest. Oh. Ezra asks him point blank about his involvement in the Heritage Front. Well, I want to start with who you are, because you have been called a neo-Nazi, you've been called a racist, You've been called a member of the Heritage Front by your accusers, and this has been the center of the, the hearings against you. Are these accurate accusations, and how would you describe yourself? Uh, no, they're not accurate accusations. I am uh, a person who deals in computers, and uh, that's where my career is, and I was a former medic in the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, the accusations that they're using against me, they didn't use any specifics in any of my cases. Uh, they tried to uh, just simply throw up that I'm a, a neo-Nazi. They called no evidence on it. All the evidence that they called was material that was on my website and a, on an internet message board where people could post comments and things like that. Well, let's talk about that. Which website are you referring to? Uh, my website's called the Freedom Site. The Freedom Site. Were you, what was your relationship with a, a group called the Heritage Front? Uh, the Heritage Front uh, was active back in uh, the 90s, and I was a young kid at the time. I had uh, some interest in some of the things that they were doing, in particularly things like uh, opposition to employment equity, things like uh, reducing immigration. So I uh, listened to some of what they were about and uh, went away from it. I mean, I was involved with them peripherally in my teenage years. Do you still? Now, they're, they're widely regarded as a racist group. Are you a racist? No. Absolutely not. You, you wouldn't categorize yourself as a white pride activist or anything of that sort? Uh, no. You wouldn't? Okay. No. I, you, I would classify myself as, as a human rights activist. Ezra just lets it go. Yeah, well, what higher authority is than asking the Nazi himself? So now we're, we're going to go to like present day. Just this year, it was uncovered that since the collapse of the Heritage Front, Mark Lemire has been employed by the city of Hamilton for their uh, IT department. In a news segment about this in May, a woman named Elisa, or 
Alyssa Hadigan, who was an ex-member of the Heritage Front and no longer identifies as a white nationalist, discusses Mark's involvement right. with the group. So, you know, now you have people who were in the movement with him basically identifying him and talking about him being in the movement. Right. So we are now very super clear about his involvement in the movement. I mean, it seemed pretty clear to start with. Right. <laughs> but now we're like super clear. Lamire was fired in August, so just this past August, after pushback, uh, especially from Matthew Green, who was a Hamilton city councilor at the time and now is an NDP MPP for Hamilton Center. He's pretty awesome. He's kind of like our AOC in a way. Cool. He was appalled that Lemire would have had access to correspondence with various social justice activists around Hamilton, given that Matthew Green used his city account to, to engage with his community and his constituents. Mm. And Lemire would have had access to all of that, right? As the IT person. Yeah, but I mean, if you can't trust a secret Nazi with that kind of information, who can you trust? And uh, would you imagine that since all this happened in 2019... Ezra hasn't said a single thing about Lemire being fired? Well, I mean, there's so many things to report on every day. I'm sure he's going to get to it. It's not like Ezra just plays the same clips over and over again uh, just to fill dead airtime. My favorite part in all of this, and this goes back to 1998, is that Lemire was likely responsible for a cover of the Heritage Front newsletter back when Ezra was a member of the Reform Party, so it's 1998, and the cover consisted of Ezra juggling the head of Preston Manning, the leader of the Reform Party. So there's a bunch of Preston Manning heads that Ezra is juggling. And Ezra looks very Jewish, let's say. Oh. And the headline says, Spin Master Ezra Levant, behind the scenes of the Reform Party. Uh. Which is, you know, nothing like claiming that a Jew is the one really holding the power and pulling the strings, when really Ezra was just some lackey at the Reform Party back in 1998. Yeah. And that was... That was... Likely by Lemire. It was clear that Lemire was running, uh, creating all the, the websites and stuff for the Heritage Front at this time. Yeah, it's on Lemire's watch. Yeah. yeah. So every time we go through one of these things, you're like, no, it's going to get worse. And I, for some reason, don't believe you. And then we get here. <laughs> it's just going over all of this as like weird, nondescript anecdotes that don't mention the cases or the people involved. And you have to kind of spend all this time digging up the details after the fact. That's one thing. That's bad enough. It's completely intellectually dishonest. But this is personal now. This is him being like singled out as a Jew by the person he's pretending isn't necessarily a neo-Nazi. And it's still radio silence. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. Like, what, what, what is sufficient motive? Like, is, is it possible for a human being to be this big a hack that you're like, nah, I'm going to let that slide? I don't know. I, I will admit that when I started getting into doing this show, I never imagined that this all this Nazi shit would happen. <laughs> I thought because he was Jewish that and he always makes the like, I'm a Jewish uh, or I'm a Jew, so I can't be a Nazi kind of like arguments. Yeah, you think if there's one type of terrible right wing thing that you're safe from with Ezra, it's the Nazi stuff. Yeah. So to wrap up. <laughs> Warman eventually uh, lost his case to Lemire in 2009, and the tribunal ruled that Section 13 was unconstitutional. It was a weird ruling, mm. and this was appealed to uh, the federal courts. And it actually, the federal courts finally ruled on it in 2014. And at this time, just so we know, I think Section 13 was appealed 
or like removed in 2013 and was to be phased out by 2014. So it was still in effect at the time that this final ruling came in, but it was like only going to be in effect for like a couple months or something like that. Yeah, it was running out the clock. Right. So even though it was being phased out, the federal courts ended up ruling in Mormon's favor, claiming that Section 13 was not unconstitutional. And basically what this means is this whole argument that somehow Section 13 is this like evil thing. The Canadian federal courts have consistently ruled that hate speech legislation is okay. So the thing that's happening here is even though you're getting rid of Section 13, what you're really doing is just taking a tool away from these courts or these tribunals, sorry, to do something. Right. And arguably it's not making the world a better place by getting rid of them. So and I say that because like a lot of the neo Nazi groups that Warman and the anti fascist organizers were fighting in the nineties and early two thousands are no longer around or are severely diminished, in no small part because of these human rights complaints. Right? Yeah, because there was apparatus in place to to go after them. And so Ezra helped to campaign to get Section thirteen removed and he succeeded. Ezra therefore denied anti-fascist activists an important tool in their tool belt and thereby helped the cause of neo-Nazis in Canada. But to end on a good note, Warman ended up suing Ezra for false allegations back in 2008, having to do with this claim that Warman published some article against a senator, I think, with uh, sexist language. And it turned out that this actually wasn't Warman who wrote it and it was false. And eventually Ezra capitulated and settled in 2015. (laughs) So almost a full 10 years later. Yeah. And uh, apologized. And so to send us on a a good farewell, I would like you to read Ezra's apology to Warman, which is quote number 10. Oh boy, I have to sound as non-contrite as possible, I suppose. In the past, I've made certain uh, derogatory statements and comments about Mr. Richard Warman on January 20th, 23rd, and 28th, 2008, and November 10th, 2008. Those statements and comments were made on my website at www.ezralevant.com. Those statements and comments attacked the personal and professional reputation of Mr. Richard Warman. I retract and apologize to Mr. Warman for those statements and comments without reservation. In particular, in one of my website posts, I alleged that Mr. Richard Warman had posted a bigoted attack on the internet against Senator Ann Cools. I have no evidence that, that this is true, and I retract it and apologize to Mr. Warman for it without reservation. So at least we get that. <laughs> I guess that that's like that's a refreshing bomb on my face for Ezra to admit, like, by the way, I said this thing. I have no evidence that that's true. <laughs> Everyone listening to my show, please consider me credible still somehow. That's a Nazi move. Now, I told you this would be long, but... Uh, that was a journey. Wow. That, it was... It was insane, like researching this and being like, because the first time I listened, to, so I listened to the book uh, first mm-hmm. and I plowed through it and just listening to it, you don't get the sense of like the mountain of information he is leaving out Yeah. until you start going, oh, that's a weird semi quote. <laughs> Let's go investigate this. Man. It is amazing how much Nazi stuff was just left off, especially when he's making the argument that Nazis aren't a problem anymore. Yeah, and again, it's not the kind of thing that you could even attribute to, like, this is Ezra being sloppy, this is Ezra being careless. Like, like this is like walking through a forest swinging an axe and painstakingly never hitting a tree. And I would argue it's intentional. And I don't, I'm not, like, afraid of saying it. Yeah, yeah, it would have to be, right? Like, we have to prefer that. Because here's the thing is, 
he was more vocal about some of like the connections of these people in more public speaking venues, but he didn't put it in print. Yeah. So the only abs the, the only motive for its absence here is that it just does not serve the narrative he's trying to push against the human rights commissions. Exactly. If you enjoy what you've heard so far, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we're doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News with a Z. We have an Instagram account, News Imperial. We have a private Facebook group called Imperial News. We also have a Discord set up. You can find the link on our Twitter. Lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to Tim for doing this two-parter with me. It, look, it was a real pleasure. And, and look, to everybody listening to this, I'm a patron of this podcast. You become a patron as well. I do not regret this decision, even though it means I listen to a lot of stuff about Nazis. Yes, but it's informative about Nazis, I guess. Yeah, I mean... At least that's what I got to keep telling myself. <laughs> it's mind-blowing, but sort of in a good way? Sort of. Yeah. Uh, do Anything to plug? Do you got like a Twitter, uh, a fanfic? Oh, no, no. I mean, it, the only reason... The only reason that anyone should look at my Twitter is if you just want to see pictures of my hopefully not choking on the smoke sun. So that's a that's a limited niche of interest. If, if I'm going to plug anything, it's continue listening to this podcast. He does have a wonderful set of hair, though. My my children yeah. have like almost non-existent hair. It's very wavy. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> just, just like the dad. Yes. Well, I don't have any hair at all. It's a, <laughs> yeah. Theirs is more illusory. Mine's going away forever <laughs> and before i go i want to say a special huge fucking thank you to all the people at anti-racist canada whose website has been covering this shit for years including records of stuff that was happening in real time back in 2008 and so a lot of this research i got a lot of like i jumped off a lot from their blog and i wouldn't have been able to do that if their site didn't exist and uh cataloged all this history of bullshit in our country so <laughs> thank you anti-racist canada if they weren't covering this shit, it would likely all go down the memory hole. So go and support them and follow them on Twitter at ARC Collective. They are awesome. And uh, yeah, super huge fucking big thank you. Making the world a better place. And thank you to those who are listening. And join us next week for chapter three, titled, How Could We Let This Happen? Albumia, Albumia, how lovely are your wheat fields.